Welcome to a special To Be More series on violence in Baltimore. I'm your host, TJ Smith. During this series, you will hear from those impacted by violence, along with those in leadership tasked with making the changes our city so desperately needs. We want to do a deeper dive into the complicated process of addressing the epidemic of violence in our city. What are we getting right? How do we expand it? What does our future look like as these plans continue to be implemented? Today, I'm pleased to be joined by Mayor Brandon Scott. Thank you, Mr. Mayor, for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you for having me, sir. Good to see you. Yes, sir. We're going to jump right into it, and I want to talk specifically about the Gun Violence Reduction Strategy, or GVRS, as it said in the acronym. Can you give our listeners a breakdown of what it is and who comprises it? Yeah, so this isn't uh, the Group Violence Reduction Strategy, or GVRS, or... um uh, as it's known in some places, focus deterrence. We've seen it take many, many, many different things, ceasefire. This isn't the first time, as you know, TJ, very well, the first time we've tried this in, in Baltimore, right? This is the third time, and we, you know, third time's the charm. What it is is it's us going away from uh, some of the outdated policies of the past uh, that you and I had to grow up with where it was about uh, mass incarceration, zero tolerance, uh, basically policing being black in Baltimore and actually focusing in, as we know very well, it's a proven method in cities across the country, uh, focusing in on a small group of people who are the most likely uh, to be the victim and or perpetrators of gun violence in our city. And what we did uh, differently this time than before, it wasn't a guess about who those people were. Uh, We worked with our national national viruses and partners, our local partners here. And this is a partnership uh, between uh, the police department, the commissioner, myself, the state's attorney, all of our federal law enforcement partners are all involved in this. And most importantly, community organizations organizations and support services that we can bring and how it works is we did the data analysis we had the folks go out and see who exactly were the group of folks that we were going to be needing to have that deep impact and it's a carrot and stick approach Uh, we go to those individuals we're starting in the western district uh, because you to do it the correct way you pilot it first and then expand out we can't make the same mistake that we made the previous times and try to go so quickly across the city because you need to make sure that infrastructure is there and it works before you replicate it in many places and we found out that there was a group of folks in the western that we knew were the most most likely but tj i think it's important to know Commonly, uh, throughout the years, we will always be discussing when we're talking about violence in Baltimore, mainly people between the ages of 18 and 24. But what we found out through the data uh, analyzation on the, this go-round was actually was a lot older. Mm. These folks were 30-plus. And that's also why we had to build up more infrastructure because, as you know, there are lots of supports and services for young people in the city of Baltimore, but there's not, there wasn't a lot around 30 plus year olds to get GED, to get services, all of these different things. And now what we have done is put that all into action. Well, we have that. We have the, the shooting reviews. We have the, the call-ins or the direct contacts with those individuals. And it's literally us saying, we want you to change your life. We want and you does that include victims? A so, person who has been shot? Yes. So it's, it's, 
anybody who meets that criteria, right? They do. Some some of the folks have been victims. Some it's the connectivity to the group, the group of individuals. It's that connectivity, that group who has been uh, connected to violence, participating in violence, victim of violence, or likely to be the victim because of their connectivity to other people. So it could be a whole bunch of different things. Mm -hmm. And we say to those individuals, you are involved in activity and with a group of folks that can cost you your life. We want you to change your life. We'll provide all these services for you to do so, but if you don't, we're going to bring the heart, you're going to learn the hard way. And we've had to, as you saw, we've had some arrest and already some charges already done through that, but we're seeing uh, great numbers in the Western District right now from GVRS with the implementation there, right? Homicides in the Western District, which is the only place where GVRS is right now, mm -hmm. are down 37%. Uh, Non-fatal shootings are down 21%. And we know this is how cities around the country have reduced crime, and you know that the Western District typically drives the violence mm -hmm. throughout Baltimore City. So starting there and then replicating is a smart way to go. So are we confident that the strategy is working in the Western District. Are we ready to hang our hat on the dropping crime in Western District due to the strategy? With, we, we know that the strategy alone is not it, right? And we have to think about all the work that happens because we're talking about now, uh, TJ, really an ecosystem that we're trying to build to reduce violence in the city. It's not just GVRS. We know Monsi and BPD and the state's attorneys off to the law enforcement partners are working on that. YAP and our community support services groups are working on that. But at the same time, we also have safe streets in the Western District, right, and the great work that they do. We also have the work that the Western District, fo folks who are not doing on GVRS, are working, right? Just regular patrol officers and things that are happening with other law enforcement partners, all the agencies, the organizations that operate in the Western District, like Center for Urban Families. We're talking about that whole thing, but we know that GVRS is a big portion of that, and what we're going to do now responsibly is take that, replicate that, expand the model to other districts mm -hmm. based on the data and what the data tells us where we should go. Not political decisions like before, not gut instincts, but based on the data itself. And I'm gonna bring up the word displacement again later on, but how confident are we that understanding it's a pilot that we aren't displacing any crime based on the, the strategy? Yeah, so far, and this is something that they look at, right? Because they know who the people are so that they can see if the folks are popping up other places. We have not seen that. We're always, as you know, monitoring displacement from any deployment and adjusting to that as we go along. Right. Now, as, as we look at it, it's all, it seems to be resource intensive. How are we going to build it out across nine police districts? And I guess the other portion of that, with the new districts that will be created, how is that going to affect GVRS? Yeah, well, you know, the Western District will change some, but not not as much as others. We we know the big changes are coming to like the Northeast, Northeast. and some of the other districts. So, uh, what all of that is going to be considered as we go into because we know we're, what we've told folks is that we're going to be trying to expand TVRS as we go into the new year, and that's also one of the reasons why because we didn't want to go and start and then. This whole neighborhood that was in this district is now in a different district. you got to build different relationships. We have to be responsible in that way, too. And the infrastructure, this is why. Uh, putting these things in place in the Western allowed us to see what we need, how we have to do it, and then replicating uh, with that with other districts. And, again, the data itself is going to drive how we get there. We, we know that it will require some resource changes, and that's why we're doing it in a responsible manner. We're not going to go from one to nine, right? We're going to be talking about expanding 
understanding and a responsible manner so that we grow in a way uh, that allows us to do that responsibly, but also to not make mistakes that we know Baltimore did the previous two times that we did this. Now, as you look to expand it, if there's any timeline on the expansion, do the GVRS models stay in place? So Western will keep their yep, GVRS will model not, will, will not and the next it. one comes online. Yep, the, the next one, the next two, the next three, whatever we respond, whatever we decide is the appropriate way to scale up, they will stay. Uh, that will stay with the Western. All of those things will be built in there. Any so. thoughts on the timeline? I want to hold you to it. I know it's well, based listen, on resources, I, it's, but any thoughts on the timeline? I, oh, I've been very clear that the, our intention is as we uh, kick off the new year, we'll be talking about how we expand. So uh, that, of course, with the way the world is working these days could change, but that's what we hope we'll be pushing for. All right, so switching gears a bit to Safe Streets, a scenario where your administration has invested a lot, and uh, but questions have arisen and reference to their effectiveness and their specific zones that there have been celebrations where there haven't been a murder um, in, in a year. And one big question is about that word displacement again. Are we tracking the people or persons and the beefs that are mitigated to ensure they weren't killed outside of a safe street zone? Yeah, so, and, and I just want to be very clear about that too. We know uh, that, that, you know, um, Safe Streets has zones, right? And we're talking about now as we're growing this ecosystem. And as you know very well, uh, me talking about changing that. Uh, we want to grow Safe Streets to be a different model of itself. That's why we did this big uh, study that I called for basically as soon as I took office because the program hadn't evolved. We're trying to help Safe Streets evolve into the next version of itself when we're talking about covering more space and talking about building that ecosystem that we're connecting safe streets with our hospital-based responders, right? This is why you have to push for folks like a life bridge to take over some more of our community sites. So we have that interconnectedness, working with our other hospitals-based system to have hospital-based response and violence interrupters there too, so that we're not just talking about them covering a small, such a small ground in such a large city, right? right? And that's something that we're working through now. And uh, we know, yes, we, you and I know that we, we've seen Cherry Hill, we've seen places celebrate these great things. We also know historically folks in Cherry Hill don't typically go to mm. other places, but uh, as they're starting to evolve and mediate that, and as we're building things in, so as, for example, victim services that now for the first time in the history of Baltimore City will actually include gunshot victims, right? So these things had never been tracked and done before because we didn't even offer victim services to uh, gunshot victims. And now that Safe Streets is mediating all of these things and being able to say these is what's happening, we can have a better understanding of what that is. As we, and I think it's important too to make the, 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 the differentiation in between Safe Streets and some of the other CBI things that are happening, right? Because as you know, uh, there's a little confusion, not from you, uh, 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 TJ, but from some folks who, who think that Safe Streets is getting opera money. No, as you know, Safe Streets is a city program, has been for over a decade now. Their money is in the city budget. It goes to CBOs like LifeBridge, like Catholic Charities, who will be operating our sites, uh, and their contracts will go through BOE like everything else. But then we have, we're trying to grow an ecosystem of community violence intervention, something that you and I have heard from folks in Baltimore our whole lives that, in addition to the great work, it's a both and, not to replace what BPD is doing, right? Not to replace what the city is doing with Safe Streets, but to be a component of that whole ecosystem. We have to invest in community-based groups that are actually doing the work, right? 
We are us, right? Making sure that they're getting that support. Folks like Uncle T and other folks who are doing that work, people that are directly impacting violence so that that ecosystem is growing as well. Uh, we stood with uh, folks from the White House and others, and Baltimore is actually being used as a model to cities around the country of how to grow that. We'll be hosting the Cities United Conference in Baltimore later this month. We'll mayors and folks from all around the country be coming into learning about growing CVI. So looking at Cherry Hill specifically, yeah. went a year without uh, murder, uh, believe that might have been a year and a half, uh, well, two years yeah. ago. They've done, done it twice in their existence, so, although last time was like a year and a half ago. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So the, the fact that they did that, however, the Southern District has seen a lot of murders. Yes. 45 as of today, um, this when, in, in October, uh, for the year. Why is it, and I don't want to oversimplify it, but why is it, is it that volatile in the area that Safe Streets operate that if they pulled out, it would become a war zone? Or why can't they slide into another area of the Southern District that's seeing a lot of violence? So the area that we're seeing a lot of it is Brooklyn. Uh, and Brooklyn actually has a site, uh, and they've been doing a lot of work, a lot of great work there too. And as you know, TJ, um, the way that these kind of things happen they happen for many, many, many different reasons, right? Of course, we have the traditional things that we have in Baltimore with territory of all around drugs and guns, et cetera, et cetera. And as you also know, uh, coming out of the pandemic, every jurisdiction in the country really has seen this increase of like these small interpersonal things that just lead to all of these things. And I know that Major Velty and his team, since we, we had a leadership change in the Southern, uh, they have seen a lot of improvement and in, in working, connecting together with everyone there and having an impact. But they're there. Uh, I know that we've been down there. I've been down there a lot. We are us has been down there. We're trying to bring everything we have to that other portions of the Southern that have been seeing these beefs and, and, as you know that part of town very well, we've even seen it be back and forth between the Anne Arundel County side and the city side working in counter, counterparts with our, with our partners from Anne Arundel as well. So, I mean, will we be pushing 400 murders if we didn't have safe streets? I can't imagine over the, the, the existence of the program, uh, TJ, I don't even know now if we would be able to go back and quantify how many lives they saved, right? right. When you And you think about, I think people think about uh, them intervening in things that people know, like it's some beef or with some money or something like that. But I think, even think back to that piece that came out about Bella Edison's last mm -hmm. year, right? When somebody was about to shoot like a 10, 11, 12-year-old boy because he made a mistake and hit their car with a scooter. Or someone, you know, actually as the brother from uh, uh, the, the Brooklyn site said to me, you know, I he intervened in the beef that a guy was going to shoot somebody. He, he spoke to me yesterday, but he didn't speak to me today. Like that, like that kind of stuff is stuff that we really have to understand the work that they do, but also what, what it unlocks and what, what else we need. Because those things are things we have to invest in people to get them the mental health and all the other services that they need as well. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm all for, and someone who always say, like, listen, this is not, we're not going to be a world where people who are committing illegal crimes are not going to be, and have a guns are not going to be held accountable. We can do both at the same time. But mm -hmm. Safe Streets saves lives each and every day. So, but, but you understand why people are a bit apprehensive or have yeah. the questions because. It's been violent. And I think of note, we have to mention the fact that September ended with, I believe, 14 murders versus 12, I think. Um, yeah, yeah, somewhere. Oh, it, it's 12 or 14, yeah. Yeah, they somewhere that, in right. that neighborhood, whatever the number yeah. between 12 and 14 is, 
half of what we've been averaging per month for the last eight years and the lowest amount since February of 2015 pre-riot Baltimore. Um, uh, that, that being said, again, we have been so violent. So people have asked the questions about safe streets and if they can move around into more violent areas of the city to help suppress some of that violence. And I would ask as well, safe streets and GVRS, are they integrated in that in the Western right now? So everything in the Western, everybody in the Western knows about GVRS and how everyone has to work together. Have to, right? And I think my, my to, the, to the other point is about the moving around. They do that organically. But as we go through now uh, this Safe Streets 2.0 model, as we start thinking about Safe Streets not in these, we're going to be in these four little block radiuses, but we're going to be in a larger area. That's what we're trying to help this program grow to. I understand that. and But we also then also, I think this is important too, uh, that we don't try to put everything on them. We don't try to put everything on we or us. We don't try right. to put everything on BPD. This is why we're talking about building an ecosystem, mm -hmm. uh, something that we've needed in the city for a long time. Because dare I say, if we... if in 1999, for example, uh, they had built that kind of work where the police were doing the things that they should be doing and focusing on. We had community violence intervention work happening the way it should be. We have targeted uh, enforcement through a GVRS model and investing in a CVI work by community organizations. We would be a much different different place today. Now we are uh, at the forefront or the or the foundational portion of building that. And we're just going to keep pushing. We want every month to be September or be better than September Absolutely. each and every day. All right. So switching gears again, uh, the consent decree. Yeah. Just a flat out question. Do you think aspects of the consent decree are negatively in impacting BPD's ability to police Baltimore? I don't. And I, I think, uh, uh, you know, Jay-Z says men lie, women lie, numbers don't. Right. You, you hear TJ and you know about how fewer uh, police officers we have today, even than in 2014 and 15, mm -hmm. right? And you hear this, this thing in the public about, oh, the police aren't working, right? And I want to get these numbers right. So this year, uh, the police department has seized 2,003 illegal guns. That is up 14% from last year and more than they even seized in 2014 at that time. And that's with 500 less officers that people like to remind us every day. So that's not less productivity. That's more productivity when you think about that. I think that what, what the struggle was, and, and you know this, the struggle was at the beginning you had uh, leadership really in the mayor's office that did not properly set the, the tone to communicate this thing out the right way uh, with not just the community, but the police as well. I've seen that the trainings, I've seen the things happen that have changed a lot of things that happen in BPD and things that I never would have thought I would have seen from them. You know, officers uh, uh, running to render aid to people who literally, you know, could have killed them. Those kind of things mean a lot. And I think that what we have to do is understand that you've never heard from me, you, you never heard from, you know, grandmothers, aunties, people in these neighborhoods impacted by crime that they never wanted police at all. But what they were very clear about is that they didn't want what we had before. Right. They didn't want people just like you and I being sick. Yeah, they want their black son or grandson to go to the store, right. not we be killed by streets. Streets or the police. Or the they police. Just, they, they, wanted, they wanted... Yeah 
constitutional policing and we're pushing through the consent decree to get it that way. Um, so the gun seizure thing, I think it's great. I applaud the Baltimore police for all the guns they're taking off the people. But we're seizing more guns, seeing the same level of violence. It's almost like there's the, a port of guns just coming in. So we're rapidly arresting people with the guns. Are the right people being held accountable? And is accountability actually occurring? There we go. That, I was hoping you'd bring that up today. I think, and this is I, why I appreciate that question so much. I wanted to go back to your factory question. You know, and I know that a few years ago, Glock was the most recovered gun that we had. And now uh, Polymer 80 or ghost guns have surpassed that, right? Because people are literally making these guns essentially in their own homes, right? We've, we have seized uh, 333 of them already this year. That's up 34%. We're encroaching on the total number for last year already, which is why I actually sued uh, Polymer 80 and some other mayors have followed uh, in my suit uh, because we know that this company is purposely uh, usurping local, state, and federal gun laws to put guns in the hands of people who should not have them, right? And this is an issue uh, that myself, uh, as a chair, co-chair of Mayors of Legal Guns and uh, board member of African American Mayors Association, that we're all working together on to raise the, the level up because we have, for many, many years, when people talk about gun regulation and all these things, it's been about schools and, er and, and suburban things. This is just as important, and we have to stop that. But to your point about the accountability, and I appreciate that question because, as you know, as you have to answer these questions for many years, after uh, the arrest is made, it's no longer in the, in the control of the police department or the, com or the commissioner or the mayor. And what we have had uh, is frustration at many levels. You, you were in city government when the governor ended the criminal justice coordinating council out of frustration mainly with the, with the bench about what was happening in the state's attorney's office. Earlier last year, I actually convinced the governor to allow me to restart that group, right, and do it in a way where we wanted to build it with the, the workers themselves about trying to build that accountability. There are so many things that have to change, uh, TJ, that are outdated in what's happening uh, once post-arrest, right? For example, uh, last session, I had to work with my good friend and Senator Corey McRae uh, because actually uh, in the Northern District, I had someone call me and say, listen, we just arrested this guy for murder in July and we're rearresting him now. And no one even told us that he was back out. How will we go face our community meeting if they've seen this person? We were the only jurisdiction in the state that didn't get that kind of notification. Right. And we know that there's so many other things that we have to work on. Uh, when you talk about, for example, uh, I I'm tired of going to homicide scenes of people that have ankle bracelets on, right? Victims and, and have people will be perpetrators of these things. And there was this one story where uh, uh, someone said that someone in that family wasn't where they were supposed to be. No one did anything. It shouldn't be that you can uh, be at home for a carjacking uh, and be out 24 hours outside of your zone and no one be able to do anything. Right. We are going to be working with our incoming governor, our incoming state's attorney, the legislator, to make sure that we fix every last loophole. And this is not about pointing fingers, right? Because many of these rules and regulations have been in place before any of us graduated high school. So why don't we, why don't we, thinking about polymer, uh, what is polymer 80? Yes, sir. Uh, why, uh, why don't we do an educational program? People know these ghost guns are illegal. We're suing the company. 
five-year mandatory minimum. I know the word mandatory minimum is the boogeyman, but that was also including low-level offenses. But we're talking gun crimes, people that are taking guns, now putting guns together, not just having a stolen forty caliber or a stolen nine, uh, a Glock 9. They're putting them together, and they're putting them together quicker than the police can get them off the streets. Um, why don't we go forward with some sort of mandatory minimum uh, and take the discretion out of the judicial and and order and and put a sunset on it. It can sunset in several years, but we have to get the people who want to have these guns off the street. What I would say, TJ, is before we even go to changing and doing it, what we first need to do is make sure that the ones that we have on the books are actually enforced. And as you know, there are in Maryland some mandatory But the discretion minimum. is there. Yeah. We have the five-year mandatory now, but it's not enforced we do. because it's discretionary. And I think what I think what has to happen in order for us to even get to that point, what we have to do is make the case for everything. Mm-hmm. And you, you make the case for these things by, one, showing things, right? You know right now there is no way in Maryland for people to know what happens in the judiciary. We are building through CJGC. One of the things that we're trying to do is for people to be able to actually see what happens. Mm -hmm. And there are so, like I said before, there are so, let me be very clear about this, the issues that are involving uh, justice and criminal justice and people being back out on the streets are not just the fault of the judiciary or the state's attorney's office or parole and probation who do great work and need to be supported, and we think they will be uh, under under our new governor, uh, the folks at uh, Corrections, Parole, and Public Safety, all of those folks, BPD, everybody has yeah. room to improve. And what I think we're going to have now that we haven't had in the city for such, or the state really, for such a long time is people in the executive positions or the roles who are willing to say, okay, these things are broken, we can work together to fix all of these things that we control collectively for the greater good. And I'm thinking and hoping that we're able to accomplish a lot of that. So back to the consent decree. Yeah. Um, you know, it's in, 2020, in 2012, the city of New Orleans entered a consent decree about five years earlier than Baltimore. And this past summer, the Democratic mayor, one of your colleagues on the African-American mayors of uh, America, uh, Latoya Cantrell asked the federal court to let them out of the decree. And her quote was, the consent decree handcuffs our officers by making their jobs harder, pestering them with punitive punishment and burying them in paperwork. I'm going to say that sounds awfully familiar because that's something that we've heard in Baltimore from some of the officers, from some of the rank and file. And she went on to add, our officers right now are not responsible for getting into the, uh, the officers that are there right now are not the ones responsible for getting them into the consent decree but they have been responsible for the results that have been demonstrated moving from red to green. Can you see yourself in the future asking to get out of the consent decree? I, I, well, it's going to happen for us, TJ, is that we're going to get out of it because we're going to meet all the things that are laid out in our consent decree. But how did, how did New Orleans, I mean, I let's be honest, to, some of this, people getting paid through the consent decree. I, I hear you. People so, get paid for a lot. I, I yeah. can't speak to my sister mayor's feelings, and obviously I don't understand the politics of New Orleans and Louisiana. I will say that we all know that Louisiana is a very special place when it comes to politics. Mm-hmm. But for us, with the progress that we've made, what we're going to do is make sure that we go all the way through this thing and do it as quickly as possible so it would be as cheap as possible right. and for that, the residents of Baltimore. And that was another thing. Okay. Is it easier from a funding standpoint to stay in it just because we have to add money to the police budget? And, and if you look at it, 
can't we accomplish the reforms outside of the consent decree um, and allow for a little bit of executive discretion? Um, Commissioner Harrison came from New Orleans, so he has experience. His feet have been wet now for 10 years in consent decree. He knows how to drive the consent decree bus. Can he implement the reforms outside the consent decree? I think that we have this moment right now with the federal administration that we have and their understanding of these things and them being very supportive, but them also uh, not being the way that other folks have been about consent decrees and they understanding as they will often tell us that this is not about tying hands, this is about us being better. And again, I think what's important to note is that every single week there's police, there's a mayor calling me or the police commissioner saying, how did you guys do this? How did you guys do that? I had the, my good friend uh, Mayor Beard from Cleveland reach out to me about some of the stuff that we've done because they're in one uh, as well and say, how did you guys do that? We are now seen as the leader in this kind of reform effort. And what we're going to do, TJ, is get out of this because they'll say, you know what? They've done all the thing, everything. We're we going to wait do. for our release, but hopefully that comes sooner we're than later. It. We're not going. Listen, we're not going to be in this thing, you know, for fifteen, sixteen years. We we know. But ten, perhaps. Things. We're going to try to like, be well like before New Orleans. ten. No, we're going to try to get out of there before ten. All right. Well, hopefully so. Back to another colleague of yours, uh, Democratic Progressive Mayor London Breed in San Francisco. She's kind of done a bit of a 180 on her city's approach to crime. The, the issue was very different. It wasn't the violent crime. It was more the quality of life issues. And her main focus uh, this summer has been talking about it. And this summer she gave a speech to the Chamber of Commerce, the money, uh, and, and, and in, in which she received her biggest applause line. Of course, these are people that have a vested interest financially, but they are creating jobs. She urged more arrests and prosecution. San Francisco, like Baltimore, has been losing population. Uh, the city of Baltimore, uh, instead of a recall, but like San Francisco, chose a new prosecutor. The residents seem to want a stronger approach to quality of life crimes. Where do you stand on that? Do you, have you spoken to your colleague, Mayor Breed, about what she's done? Actually, what saw Mayor, Mayor Breed and I spent a long time together at CBC Saturday uh, okay. uh, last uh, last week as uh, the Speaker the Congressional Pelosi. Black Caucus. Bo- both last of, as Speaker Pelosi said, both of her mayors were together. So, okay, uh, yeah, uh, how about that? But we we. What you have to understand is that, as you know, every city is different, and my sister mayor is making the best decision for San Francisco, right? And I think she trusts me enough to make the best decisions for for Baltimore. And also noting that as we get our new state's attorney, like as he and I have been telling everyone, folks can try to create this divisiveness, but we're not having it. We're going to be focusing on making sure that we, as he and I both share, focus on the violent crime, but also making sure that we let folks know uh, in the best way possible, working with how his office is going to be doing prosecution to make sure that we're dealing with quality of life. But a a Democratic colleague in a very progressive city, much more than Baltimore, losing population, talking to the people who create jobs, bring in income. She said we have to arrest more people and, and again, quality life, different world and prosecute more. Is this something that you could see? necessary here in Baltimore to try to drive the economy. I'll I'll say it like this, TJ. Uh, 2011, we had the lowest homicides that the city has ever seen on record. 198, right? Uh, There was like 60,000 arrests that year. Mm -hmm. 2003, we had over 270 homicides that year. There were 100,000 arrests that year. In Baltimore, it's never been about how many, but who. It's about the quality and the focus of it, and that's what we have to do. 
All right, and with that, moving over to that squeegee issue, that we know there's a collaboration that's trying to find solutions. Once we exhaust the conversations and have actionable plans, is this going to end the practice of squeegee? So I think what we have to understand that we're talking about poverty, right? Uh, whether you're talking about folks standing out there with a sign, whether you're talking about folks squeegeeing, whether you're talking about folks selling water, whether you're talking about folks... Doing do we believe... I'm sorry to interrupt you. I would have yeah. to ask. Do we believe that every person on the corner with a squeegee is living in poverty? Every single person well, on no. the corner with I a squeegee. I would say we, we know... I, I, don't, I don't speak in absolutes, TJ, because the world isn't absolute, right? We, we know that there's instances of, of people who have homeless signs have been known to find out that they weren't, they were the opposite of homeless, right? right. So we, we don't speak in that. But we know by and large uh, these issues, the folks who are homeless, who are out there and living in tents, all of these things are driven uh, uh, by the economic situations that we have in the city of Baltimore. And because we are the birthplace of redlining, driven really by these racist policies that were created before you and I were born that we're now having to, to uh, cash the check of, so to speak. What was happening with this squeegee collaborative, though, I think is so important because we have uh, business leaders, philanthropic leaders, community organizations, people that squeegee, people that used to squeegee, right, all together in the room to say, we're going to finally once and for all. And what I've heard from many people in the business community, people that create jobs, as you say, is that this is the first time that they have ever seen the issue even be taken seriously, uh, that, we're, that we are, are finally putting together things that it's not just about coming up with one program or one, you know, one base solution, right? This is us digging deep into the issue. What's going to happen uh, when that group comes back with our uh, uh, recommendations for how we deal with everything, including accountability for everybody, people who squeegee, people, motorists, all of that, is how do we then make sure that this issue that we have today is not going to be the same issue that we have the next 40 years? Because the, the irony as we sit in this studio is that we all now have seen the infamous 1987 cl 85 mm -hmm. clip from Channel 2 uh, where this very same issue was being discussed. The squeegee kids were in a special class last night, being told how to wash windshields courteously and safely, and being told they'd have to stay in the curb lane and wait for drivers who wanted their window squeegee to pull over. But this morning, despite the signs and the official buttons, it was business as usual for the squeegee kids. They were still in the street, reluctant drivers still being solicited, traffic still being blocked, and the kids still dodging cars. Are they still supposed to be doing that? I believe they're to stay in the lane, but you know, this is the first day we have to work out a lot of things, I'm sure. It's only been three, per three people that have pulled up and making money like, you ain't gonna make no money like that. Rush hour commuters did ignore the squeegee station for an hour and seven minutes before the first driver pulled in. I knew they were gonna be here and I wanted to give them the business. I think this is a very worthwhile thing to do. These kids are out trying to earn some money in a, what I think is a perfectly legal way and should be encouraged. How often do you think you pull over here? Oh, at least once a week. Some drivers who did not pull over say the kids should be made to stay over in the curb lane. On the curb lane, fine, but not in these lanes. This lane was where I almost saw a boy get hit last week. Do you think when your window's dirty, you might pull over there to get it washed? No. 
And the very same solutions that have been offered since then were offered, and clearly they weren't the solution because the issues still exist. But it, it kind of went away, and then it came back, and it seems to be back bigger than ever. If the recommendations come back and their opportunities, is the opportunity to squeeze you in a corner still going to be one of them? Well, I think that what you have to understand, is, TJ, is that what's going to happen here is that we're going to enforce the laws as based on what the Constitution allows, right? We're going to do as we always have done and always will do. Uh, we're going to follow uh, the regulations on what the approach is going to be about accountability on all levels, right? We are not going to criminalize poverty. We are not going to be saying that, hey, you know, because I think it's important to note. But we're going to give them a path. If, if, if there are opportunities, we right. give them a path and so they still decide like to be there. They... I, I say it like this. I'll just say it to you this way. If we, for example, if we go out there and say you were suffering homeless and standing out there with a sign, right? And we say, hey, we have opportunities for you, et cetera, et cetera. You take that, right? And then you come back. You come back and you're standing out there and you're homeless and standing with a sign. And let's just say you just happen not to be African-American, right? We have to treat everybody that's out there in those intersections the same. And what this group is going to do is provide us what we think is the best approach to deal with all of that together. So sticking with juveniles, what do you think we can do? What more can we do in the short term to deal with juvenile crime? And I think it's very important to highlight the difference of juvenile delinquency mm -hmm. and juvenile crime. violent crime. Yes, um, we saw what happened at your alma mater, Merville, the first week of school with Jeremiah Brogdon, a 17-year-old suspect from another school, came over and murdered him at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. What more can we do to grapple with these issues? They're two different unique issues. Yeah. But yeah, totally different do? issues. I think uh, they're interconnected, but I think it also goes back to what we we're talking about earlier. As you know, everyone knows now, uh, the young man that is is uh, uh, accused because everyone's innocent until proven guilty. But we have very, very strong evidence, right, of it happening in front of people at the school of, of killing Jeremiah was already previously arrested and convicted for another crime. He just hadn't be hadn't been committed yet, right? That's something that. I can't change. That's something that I can't deal with. That's why we have to work with our state partners. And when you think about uh, this is what I harp on all the time, even looking at carjackings, right, and what we'll be working with our incoming governor, other folks about, the state's attorney, about uh, when I'm in a police stat meeting and I'm talking to BPD about juvenile carjacking arrest, which is a violent, a violent crime. And I say, well, how many have we had in a certain day period? And they say 30. How many of them are rearrests? And they say 20. Right. That then to me signals that the issue isn't with BPD and the work that they're doing. There's some other thing that's happening there. And we have to we all know uh, uh, that we have evolved the understanding that uh, uh, criminal justice for young people, the way young people's brains are, is not the same for adults. But no accountability is also not an option. And that's what we can do right now. Start to fill those gaps. What do we do when we hold these young people accountable? We can't just be sending them back home or back out on the streets. We have to make sure that there's some services, there's some accountability, all of those things that we can do. And then average everyday people, uh, TJ, can, can help out with by in, just getting involved in these young people's lives because you know that makes a difference too. But we have to fix these systemic things because I'm tired of talking about the same people over and yeah. over and over again. And you see things. them. You can and, see, and you them see them very easily. So yeah. with that, 
What type of investments? We talked about Safe Streets and some other programs. What type of investments has the city made in programs like Umar Boxing, For My Kids, I Am Mentality, Project Numa, and other nonprofits that are working specifically with the youth? Yeah, and when, when you think about those kind of things that we're doing, we know that Monsi has this big portal, and a lot of that is youth work at YAP. We know our Project Numa, the work we, we just, I just uh, awarded money to, uh, oh, man. I'm trying to think of their, their name really quickly. It'll come to and, me. And there's many of them. There's out so there. many of them. Yeah. There's so many of them out there. Even sports organizations that we're going to be giving money to that deal that deal with kids. Keys Development is getting mm-hmm. some of our ARPA money. Making sure that we're investing in these organizations that are working with young people directly. Uh, the Urban League is actually getting a big uh, a get a big a big portion of it as well. So the General Assembly, as we get towards a close here, the General Assembly came up recently, you just brought it up about working with state partners. 15-year-old Nikayla Strider was killed by a 9-year-old. Outrageous. I happen to be on the side of I don't think a 9-year-old should be held criminally responsible in that way to go to jail, but some level of responsibility, of course. Moreover, the parental or guardian responsibility. And I don't agree with that. That law just changed, however. A year ago, if this occurred, he would have been held criminally responsible. That's really not my biggest point, but no one really is going to be held responsible for Nikayla's murder. And that law was changed from 8 to 10. Do you think our laws are adequate? I mean, should we have some sort of kicker there to hold a a guardian responsible. I'm going to say this. This guardian can be held responsible, as you know. Uh, there are, and I, I said it then, I'll say it again, I said it to the family when I met with them a few weeks ago, uh, that she should be charged. Maybe negligent. Not now, not, not manslaughter or murder, or, but or negligence. Some you minor. have a weapon that you left as a, as a gun owner, that you left open, that this young man had, we believe, for multiple days, you should be held and responsible. And I think it's a misdemeanor. It, yeah. It's a misdemeanor <laughs> charge. That's the thing. Yeah. So in theory, if she was charged with something, whether you even stretched it to negligence or um, the gun in reach of a person under the age of 21 or 16, whatever it is, it's a minor charge. And Arguably, this person probably has no criminal history because they have their yeah. gun, and they're going to get smacked on the wrist. And it's like, but I'm sorry need, I did that. But yes, and we but, have a 15 year old gone, and that's the kind of thing that we have to look at because we cannot, we, like you said, a nine year old. Yes, we know that sending a nine year old to prison is is something different, but we can't have adults just letting young people carry around guns. Oh, of course they not. just can't yeah. do that, and that's something that we have to work and push our state partners to address because they, you know. You don't have to. A lot of folks, you know, who are, they, they don't have to look at these families in the eyes. I'm the person that has to, t- to deal mm-hmm. with them, right? Because a lot of folks just simply don't understand who is in charge of these laws. And right there, so they assume the people that they see. Mm-hmm. And when you have to explain to them that there's nothing more that the police can do, uh, that they yeah. can't just go it's out. Tough and conversation. It's a tough conversation. And we shouldn't have to have conversations about people who are supposed to be safe, Gun safely owning their gun, being so irresponsible that this young girl is gone, and yeah. that all these kids that were there are traumatized because they simply didn't know how to control and keep their gun locked. And the nine-year-old was in a position yep, to, to grab that gun and do it, and he's traumatized. I'll give you credit, Mayor, for looking families of victims in the eye because your colleague—I can say it—you can't. 
in Philadelphia um, said in an interview this summer, I haven't spoken to one family of murder victims. I think that's absolutely outrageous. There's nothing more egregious that can happen in your city um, besides the blood of a human on the ground and their family member wondering which way to go. Um, so thank you for doing that. Continue to do that. It's very important to these families that there's some level of connectivity. Um, do you have any legislative? I know we're late. We're in the fourth quarter, early in the fourth quarter of the year. But do you have any legislative plans? And I know people think I'm going to lock them up and throw away the key guy. I'm not. Lock up <laughs> the right people. Lock up the right people. And guess what? You want to carry a gun illegally As and you get caught with it, you're going to jail, period. End of story. We have a problem in the city. Do you have any legislative plans to go to the General Assembly related to crime? I, I, I'm not yeah. going to. Give out the details yet because I promised some folks that I would give them the first thing and you got to make uh, sure we do that. But just, just know, TJ, uh, that we will be focusing in on uh, those reforms and kind of things that we talked about, in particular around violence and violent offenses and also making sure that we're uh, updating some of our rules and regulations that are impacting uh, violence, much like the one we just talked about. We spoke about. Incoming state's attorney Ivan Bates um, a little earlier. Are you and Mr. Bates's visions aligned? I think uh, the, the, the state's attorney elect and I are going to be very well aligned. I know that myself and uh, our, our incoming governor to be, as I like to call him, Westmore, going to be very well aligned. And I think having that unification. Uh, across the board, it's going to bode very well for the city of Baltimore. And because we already know uh, the great partnership that I had with President Biden, and Vice President Harris and their team. Um, and really quickly, as we conclude, I want to touch on the economics of crime. We know that there's money that's been put into the harbor. We know that there's a revitalization plan for Harbor Place, or at least we have a new developer on board. How are we going to instill confidence to people in the suburbs to come and spend their money in Baltimore? Because that money is green, whether it's spent in Baltimore City, Baltimore County, Carroll County, or whatever. Green is green. And, and and, but it's opportunity. Because yeah, the people green. working in whatever the establishments are in and around that harbor as it's redeveloped are likely going to be Baltimoreans. How are we going to instill a level of confidence? Because we can't put lipstick on a pig. We have to change it. Yeah, it's, it's continue to do the work that we've done and talk about that work. Acknowledge the challenges that we have, TJ, but also don't let certain folks just make, sh make people feel like that nothing's happening, right? So making sure that people know that. And we can see that people are willing to come. When you look at the amount of people that were downtown for the Maryland Cycling Classic mm -hmm. on Labor Day weekend, right? The folks that we had at Charm City Live, the folks that came to the CIAA where we eclipsed the numbers that Charlotte had in 2019 during the pandemic. Uh, as our Orioles uh, went on a playoff hunt, the folks that come back, and of course, as the Ravens are there every Sunday, the folks that came back to Afram, what people want to see is that we're going to be out there making sure that we are having the effort and the impact and the results, and we're going to continue to do that. We're going to continue to work with all the investors, Dave, we were just downtown last night talking about a new space for, for entrepreneurs in, in the Transamerica Tower. We can see that. You know the arena's being invested in right now. We have all these downtown things that are happening. People can see, and I think it's important to note, too, when I'm in other places, so if I'm in D.C., if I'm out of town and I'm talking to other folks, all I hear in New York, all I hear from these business folks is like, yeah, we're looking at Baltimore. We think Baltimore is a city that we should invest in now because we can see great things on the horizon. Excellent. Well, 
as we record this, we're in a lull, the biggest lull we've been in since 20, early 2015 with violent crime, murders, and shootings for that matter. We're below where we were last year this time, but this year will still end up as a very violent year. Yes, sir. But where we are right now is great. And it's sad for the people who've lost somebody, obviously, but we're in a better place than we've been in. Is there anything else that you want to say about crime and what your administration's doing as we wind down 2022 and prepare for 2023? That we will leave nothing on the table and that they're going to get every effort that we have. Uh, yes, we're in a better place, but I want to be in the best place, TJ. Once you have the best, better ain't as good, as they say. We're going to continue to go after those folks with those guns. We're going to continue to go after the people that are trafficking. We're going to continue to go after manufacturers. We're going to go after people that we know are in violent groups committing murders, uh, serving those warrants. WATF continues to do a great job. The homicide detectors, the best in the world, continue to do a great job. We're going to continue to have our violence interrupters intervene in violence and build that CVI ecosystem. We're going to work with our federal partners, our U.S. Attorney Eric Barron, who I, I speak with frequently. All of everybody, they're going to get the best effort that we have to make sure that we're having as much as an impact on the violence that we can. Excellent. We hope so. And thank you very much for joining us in this in-depth conversation about violence. A lot of people might not understand some of the nuances of things that are happening. And thank you all for listening to this special series on violence here on To Be More. I'm TJ Smith, your host, and we will talk next time. You can catch the podcast where podcasts are available and on WMAR-TV. And uh, we'll see you next time. Thank you very much for joining us.